0: Good morning. The reading today is from Ecclesiastes 1 to 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do all the people gain from all their labours of which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All the streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear it's full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there's something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took no delight in all my labour, and this was the reward for all my toil. (laughs) Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. From chapter Chapter 2, 24 to 26. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner... He gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand uh, to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind.
1: Thank you, Sue. Nice uplifting passage. That one. How's everyone going at the moment? Uh, It's great to to be with you this morning, and it's great to be covering a very intriguing book of the Bible over these next few weeks. Uh, Maybe you're familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, or maybe the the reading that we just had then was the first time that you've ever read it. And at face value, the mood comes across as quite pessimistic and cynical, doesn't it? Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. And you might be thinking, do we really need to hear such a glass-half-empty perspective of life? Surely there's enough of that in the world already. Here's the thing, though. I don't think the writer of Ecclesiastes is a pessimist. No, I think, I think he's a man who is in tune with the deepest longings of his heart, and he knows that nothing in life truly satisfies those longings. Maybe that's a feeling that you can relate to. I think the, the author, C.S. Lewis, put it really well when he, when he said, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they want something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. I wonder if that rings true for you at all, that life never quite seems to deliver on what it promises. The writer of Ecclesiastes is posing the question of whether true meaning and lasting gain can be found in this life. And the answer he gives is no. At least, not without bringing God into the picture. Ecclesiastes shows us how the frustrations of life, which we're all familiar with, point us to the author of life. So whether you've been following Jesus your whole life or this is the first time you've ever stepped into a church, my hope and prayer is that the honest realities of Ecclesiastes resonate with you. But more than that, I hope they stir up in you a longing for something more, something beyond what we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands. Uh, so getting into it, verse 1, uh, we meet the teacher or the, the gatherer of the assembly who writes Ecclesiastes. He's clearly a, a wise and well-respected public speaker. It's commonly thought that the teacher is none other than the great King Solomon. Uh, this would explain why he identifies in verse 1 as son of David and king of Jerusalem Uh, It would explain the teacher's lavish lifestyle that we read about there at the start of chapter two, which mirrors what we read about Solomon's wealth and wisdom in the Book of 1 Kings. And it gives a bit of authenticity to the teacher's quest, doesn't it? You know, if anyone can find meaning in life, then surely it's the the wealthiest, wisest man who ever lived. The other possibility, of course, is that the teacher is someone who lived after Solomon but who uses Solomon's famous life to illustrate his argument. We never, he never explicitly identifies as Solomon and there's not a lot after chapter two that really points to Solomon writing it. At the end of the day, we don't know for sure. It's one, it's one of those unknowns. And in any case, we get to the last chapter. I don't want to spoil the ending here, but we get to the last chapter and we find out that someone else has actually put the teacher's words together to make the book. So what's the teacher's assessment of life here? Well, verse two puts it pretty bluntly. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And he ends the book with these exact same words as well. Meaningless is kind of the theme that runs right throughout the book. Uh, the words that's translated here as is meaningless is, is used a lot of times throughout the book. and It's got a range of meaning. It can mean futile, vanity, fleeting, absurd, vapor. Um, the teacher is saying that there's, the nature of life is that it can't, be, it can't be grasped. It can't be pinned down. There's, there's a certain fleeting nature to it. I had Rory, our little little baby, with me in the bathroom once while the the shower was running and the the bathroom was filling up with steam, and Rory was about five months old, he was getting to that that point where he was wanting to grab onto everything, and he he saw this steam coming towards him, and he was trying trying to grab hold of the steam and getting really confused about why he couldn't grab onto it. If you want a mental picture of what the teacher is saying about life, then picture a baby in a foggy bathroom trying to, trying unsuccessfully to grab hold of the steam. That's what the teacher is saying here. Uh, we can never pin life down. We can never get it quite the way we want it. Um, as much as we'd love to, we can never hit the pause button on those good moments in life and, and make them last forever. Uh, so the teacher asks in verse 3, What do people gain from their labors under the sun? What can be gained? You see, like any shrewd investor, the teacher has the bottom line in mind here. None of us would invest in shares that we didn't think were were going to make a profit in the long term. And likewise, the teacher, he wants to get a a good return on his investment in life the phrase under the sun here is one that the the teacher uses a lot throughout the book. And he's talking about a purely human perspective of life, a a perspective that's bounded by the the world's horizons with God left out of the picture. Um, So he's basically critiquing a secular worldview here. What does the teacher observe under the sun? Well, he sees the fleeting, futile, and frustrating nature of life. Generations come and go, each one quickly forgotten by the next. The sun, the wind, and the streams, they never arrive where they're going. The sea is never full. The water cycle never reaches its end goal. There's always more to be moving. Eyes and ears are never satisfied. There's always something else to see and hear. And in the famous words of verse nine, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. What has been will be again. History repeats itself again and again and again. And this is observable for us in so many ways, isn't it? From the, the mundane to the, the very significant. You know, I change Wari's nappy knowing that I'll be changing it again in a couple of hours' time, or Elise will be, <laughs> more likely. Um, we rake up leaves knowing that more will fall out of the tree tomorrow. You care for that difficult and self-destructive friend, knowing that they'll need more care in a few days' time. We never quite feel like we've arrived in life. The nature of life is that it's full of loose ends that we'd, we'd love to tie up neatly, but we just can't quite get there. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Nothing new under the sun. What about all of our technological advances that we've made in the three millennium, millenniums since this book was written? Um, well, I've got an iPhone 11. It's, it's a nice phone, does, does lots of nice things. But when I got it, I was no more happy, no more excited than, than when I got that first Nokia 3210 almost 20 years ago. And more to the point, human nature doesn't change, does it? Uh, The 20th century was meant to be the era where science and technology left religion miles behind and and took humanity to, to new levels. Instead, it helped us fight bigger wars. There's nothing new under the sun when it comes to who we are. And this all leaves the teacher concluding that the world is a broken place. The world is a broken place and we can't fix it. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Therefore, verse 14, all things done under the sun are meaningless. Humanity hasn't arrived, and we never will. We're more likely to to catch the wind and to pin the wind down uh, than we are to achieve gain under the sun. And then in verse 16, the teacher moves from general observations to his own personal experience. He tells of his quest to find meaning and substance in life. Where can it be found? If King Solomon wasn't the writer of Ecclesiastes, then the teacher must surely be using Solomon's famous life to communicate his point here. And that point is that not even the wealthiest, wisest person in the world can find satisfaction and meaning in the things of this world. So the teacher tells of his search for wisdom, he, sorry, his search for, for meaning and satisfaction. And he begins with wisdom. Now, Solomon, by, by God's blessing, was the wisest man who ever lived. But it doesn't satisfy him. More wisdom brings more sorrow, it doesn't solve the frustrations of life, it just teaches him more about them. So the teacher turns his mind from wisdom to. Uh, laughter and folly and entertainment. But even the best wine and the funniest stand-up comedians at the king's disposal can't fill the emptiness. So he turns to work instead. He undertakes great projects, houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, possessions beyond measure. Solomon's wealth and building projects that we read about in the Book of One Kings were extraordinary. There was no one like him. He takes delight in his work. It's it's not all bad news, he takes delight in it. But this was his only reward. Verse 11, when he surveys all that he's achieved, it's still meaningless. No gain has been made. What about pleasure then? The teacher denies himself nothing. He invests in every pleasure. Now, Solomon, you might be aware, had 700 wives and an extra 300 concubines, so the the teacher isn't kidding when he says this. Uh, Yet even for the man who has it all, everything comes up short. He examines his life and he sees nothing, no meaning, no gain. And that's because he comes back to a realisation that he'll keep coming back to throughout this whole book, the unescapable Reality of death. Uh, Verse 14, we we skipped over verses 12 and 23 in the the reading, but I'll, I'll cover it quickly here. Verse 14, the same fate overtakes both the wise man and the foolish man. The wise teacher knows that he's going to come to the same end as the most foolish person who ever lived. And this is why there was no gain in the teacher's work. Because from a human perspective, under the sun... Death is the end of the road. It gets the last laugh. And so for someone with the teacher's desire for gain and fulfillment in life, death is a crushing blow. And so he despairs. He hates life. He hates his work. Because one day, he's going to have to leave behind everything that he's toiled hard for to someone else. Someone who hasn't earned it. And in Solomon's case, that was a well-founded fear. His, after he died, the poor leadership of his son fractured the kingdom that Solomon had worked so hard to build up. The world is a frustrating place, the teacher concludes. And even the man best placed to find meaning and gain in it has come up short. There's nothing to be gained under the sun. So where does this leave us? We might wonder, I'm keen to leave you with something a bit more uplifting than what we've covered over the last 10 minutes or so. Um, where does this leave us? Well, it requires us to, to broaden our horizons beyond the sun. In the final couple of verses of chapter two, the teacher finally reaches a positive note as he brings God into the picture. He sees that food, drink, and work are gifts from God for our enjoyment. And verse 26, to the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. While the sinner, the person who doesn't care about pleasing God, can merely gather up wealth that that someone else will one day own. Can you see the the key here? The key is seeking to please God. The teacher's quest for meaning was a self-centered quest. He was living for himself, Happiness, his own happiness was his chief aim. It's all I, 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 me, me, me. And it leaves him seeking meaning and fulfillment in things that were never meant to provide meaning and fulfillment. See, good things are spoiled when we, we try to get more out of them than they were meant to provide. The key to enjoying these good gifts, wisdom, wine, food, laughter, pleasure, home building projects, all these things, the key to enjoying these gifts is recognizing them to be just that, gifts. And if the gifts are this good, then how awesome must the giver be? A few weeks ago, Alicia bought me a gift. It's a face mask with seals on it. It's um, it's very, very handy. Apparently, it makes me look more approachable. That was the... (laughs) The reason she bought it seems to be doing the job um, it 's it's a nice gift. I, I really like it I, I, I wear it quite a lot. Um, but how sad would it be for me to obsess over what a great gift this is, what, a, what an amazing mask with seals on it this is, and ignore the person who gave it to me you see this this gift represents just a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of who Alicia, who Alicia is to me and, and the joy that I have of knowing her. If the gift is good, then how much better must the giver be? Can't say I never compliment my wife up the front. Um, But it's the same for our relationship with God, isn't it? Seeking meaning and, and gain in anything but God sells us short. Because true satisfaction can only be found not in the gifts, but in God himself. I wonder... What is it that you need to be happy? Like if you think about your life right now, do you ever think to yourself, I just need this, and then everything will be good in life. Now, the teacher is telling us here, it's a dead end. There'll be something else you want after that. There'll be another barrier to your happiness that will pop up as soon as you knock that last one down. When I was in high school, I, I, I thought deep down that you know, once I got the grades that I needed to get into uni, I'd be happy. I wouldn't want anything else after that. Life, life will be good. And then I just wanted a job after I graduated uni. That, that's all I need, just, just a job after I finish uni. And then oh, wouldn't it be nice to be married? It'd be great to be married. I'd, be, I'd really love to get married. And oh, I'm married, that's great. It'd be nice to have a, a baby and maybe have a few kids as well. And oh, it would be nice to own my own house and th- then I'll be happy. You get the idea, don't you? Something else always pops up. We never quite arrive in life. There's always something else we want. There's another loose end that we'd love to tie up that we can't. It's tempting to seek our satisfaction in the same sorts of places that the teacher looked for them. I mean, how nice is it living in the Adelaide Hills in the 21st century? Even King Solomon couldn't even imagine the lifestyle we have here. He didn't have cars, Wi-Fi, modern medicine, so many of the things that we take for granted right now. But the world is broken, even here and now. Under the sun, from a human vantage point, in a broken world, true meaning and lasting gain can never be found. But God wants us to find it, and he wants us to find it in him. God created humans to enjoy a perfect, never-ending relationship with him, one of infinite gain. But we rejected God. We chose to seek our meaning and our happiness in created things rather than the creator. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And in doing that, we we corrupted not only our relationship with God, but our relationship with each other and with the world around us as well. The the brokenness and the futility that the teacher sees in the world around him and and that we see in the world around us as well shouldn't surprise us. It's a consequence of sin. We read about it in Romans chapter eight where we read that the creation was subjected to frustration, verse 20. and verse 22, the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth. But there's good news. There's good news. Frustration and death aren't the end of the story. Our sin and our broken relationship with our creator aren't the end of the story. Because something happened after the teacher's lifetime. Something that he didn't know was going to happen. Something that helps us to understand his writings in a way that not even he did. And that is that Jesus, God's own son, died to deal with our sin once for all. My sin, your sin. to bear it himself on the cross so that we don't have to. And not only that, but he was raised back to life as well to prove that there's something on the other side of death. Jesus has dealt not only with our guilt before God, but he's dealt with the harsh reality of death. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus. This is, this is all a bit new for you. Well, this is the message that is at the heart of of what it means to be a Christian. Believing that Jesus died for my sins and that he was raised back to life as well, to conquer death. Uh, So we live now with the reality of sin and brokenness in the world, but we await what's to come as well. When, in the words of Romans chapter eight, creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Our adoption as God's children will be fully realised. Our faulty bodies will be fully redeemed. And these words, these wonderful words of Romans chapter 8, verse 18, will, will not be a longing hope, but a present reality. When Paul writes that, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The Gospel message not only gives us hope, but it shows us how amazing God is, how satisfied we can be in Him, what gain we can have in Him. A God who loved us enough, even when we rejected Him, to send His own Son to die in our place so that we could be brought back into a relationship with Him. Getting to my main point in a sec, I'm just waiting for the thunderbolt to, to go at the right moment. Um, We we heard earlier, didn't we, everything done under the sun is meaningless. That's a a pretty big statement to make, and it it probably makes us think, well, what does that mean for me going to work this week? Is is what I'm doing at work meaningless? What about my hobbies? Are they meaningless? What about about my family? Is, Is everything I do in life meaningless? Well, if we're seeking our meaning in these things, then there's a sense in which they are meaningless, because in the sense that they're not going to last. Things in this life are fleeting and, and unlasting. But if we're doing them in the context of a relationship with God, if we're, if we're enjoying them as gifts from God, if we're seeking to please God and to honor God in what we do in life, then there's huge amounts of meaning and gain in that because that relationship with God is one that will last. It's one that will last into eternity. So where are you seeking your meaning and your satisfaction in life? Are you seeking it in the good things that you have? Are you seeking it in the good things that you want? Or are you seeking it in the God who gives us good things for our enjoyment as a tiny, tiny hint of how awesome he is and how much more he has in store for us? If the gifts are this good, then how awesome must the giver be? Are you seeking your fulfillment in something that can provide it? Are you seeking it in something that will last? Life under the sun at times is gonna seem meaningless. It's gonna seem frustrating and, and full of loose ends and letdowns. But when we fix our gaze beyond the sun, it changes everything. And so I hope you'll join us over the next few weeks as we continue to do that. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for these words of Ecclesiastes. We, we thank you that even though they're, they're confronting and they do seem a bit unhappy and cynical at times, we, we thank you for the way that this book speaks into the frustrations and the futilities of life that we all experience, uh, that it's, it opens our eyes to these things. It, it shows us that there is more to the life that you've given us than the things we see in the here and now. Uh, we do pray that as we experience the ups and downs of life that it would point us to you, the author of life. That when the good things in life don't quite satisfy, that it would point us to you, the God who does satisfy. And that we, when we do enjoy the good things in life, that it would point us to you, the God who is the giver of all good things. And that. Most of all, it would point us to the gospel, that it would point us to your son Jesus who laid down his life for us, who was raised back to life, defeating death. And we pray that the gospel would be the lens of everything in this world, the good and the bad, and that in everything, you would draw us closer to you. Amen.